0: This is the podcast of a woman named Rad and a man named Paul. Welcome to Game for Anything. Hi, I'm Paul.
1: And I'm Rad. And today
2: on Game for Anything, we take a royally good look at the new Prince of Persia. Damn, son, it's the Samsung S24, that is. Okay. All right. The Last of Us Part 2 gets a remaster just three and a half years after the first release and I enter my dollhouse era.
1: Oh, okay. What a deeply questionable statement that you've just made. We certainly do have opinions. I am not going to start with the dollhouse because I think I need a little bit of time to warm up and be ready for whatever that is. Uh, yeah. But you did mention the new Prince of Persia and Paul, did you know that that is actually one of the first games I ever played? Not the new one, the original. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The-
2: <laughs> You've been lying for years about your gaming I've, credentials? Yeah, I've
1: just been born.
2: <laughs> okay, so Principles of the original, the Jordan-Mechna game, where you basically play as a man in white pajamas running and jumping, right? That's the one you're talking about.
1: Yes, uh, I believe it was on MS-DOS. Yes. And I used to play with my sisters and dad, and we were young enough that uh, I don't think we had a proper full awareness of what was going on. I don't think we ever got out of the first level, but we did used to, like, running around Crouch going, get down low and go, go, go. That is my, like, core memory of that game.
2: Oh my god. I have a very similar memory. I never beat anyone in a sword fight. My memories consist of enjoying the animation, because it was rotoscoped, uh, and then relating to the moments where he fell more than probably five feet and his feet looked like they hurt when they landed. (laughs) This was... You know when you try to jump off something and the blood rushes to your feet and you get that weird, that painful slap? That's as far as I got. That was my Prince of Persia experience as well.
1: I think that's just called being 40, Paul.
2: 40, 41 now, I'm so old. I'm so oh yeah,
1: that's right, sorry.
2: Wizened. This new Prince of Persia does have a little more in the tank. Uh, and frankly, it's a lot easier, which is nice. But Prince of Persia is objectively back. It's not the first time that Prince of Persia has been rebooted. I don't know if you remember... But in the early two thousands, around two thousand three, four, five, they released a game called The Sands of Time, and then there were two follow ups: The Warrior Within and The Two Thrones. And I remember them partly because they were really good games, Rad, but mostly because the prince himself had the exact same facial hair as the singer from Filter, that band that did the Take a Picture song. Do you remember? <laughs> Do you remember that song? No,
1: I have no idea what you're talking about.
2: Just that iconic early 2000s sound. It was pretty much the same facial hair as the singer from Smash Mouth, the guy from Sugar Abed. You know, that oh, little bit of. um,
1: um the flavour saver. The, oh, the, the Shannon Knoll?
2: Yes, the Nolzy, But kind of a variant on the Nolzy. You know, you could. It, I feel like they were a whisper away from putting a bucket hat on the prince in these games. <laughs> it was a real. Product of its era.
1: Well, when I think of Persian royalty, I definitely think Smash Mouth. So I think it's a pretty (laughs) one-to-one kind of rendition of the Prince of Persia.
2: What is a prince if not an all-star? Really? Samba! My... My uh, interest in Prince of Persia has kind of come and gone, and so when the new game got sent to me, uh, Ubisoft sent across a press code, and it's called The Lost Crown, and I was told initially that this isn't like the other games, this is a Metroidvania, and I'm a huge fan of the Metroidvania as a genre, but here's the the, the kicker, you don't play as the prince. The prince gets kidnapped in the early game, and you're playing as a guy trying to rescue him.
1: Wait, What? <laughs> Okay, no, actually, I, 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 at first I was like, no, unacceptable. Yeah. But I'm going to roll that on back because we all are aware of the legend of Zelda.
2: That is correct. And Zelda is not really uh, playable in those games. She gets whisked off and, you know, has agency and does lots of cool shit, especially in the new games. But in this game, your prince gets taken to another castle very early and you're one of seven sort of legendary heroes heading off into this really messed up ancient city that's been sort of um you know it's time is very janky and fluid there so you head in there and you have an adventure you play as this guy called sargon which is a it sounds like a toilet cleaner not the best name for a hero that's by the by <laughs> you're basically on a rescue mission in a metroidvania and um it didn't grab me but then i realized you know how you're not meant to uh, buy food when you're hungry uh I don't think... That's the
1: best time to buy food. That's when I buy all the stuff I like the most.
2: Yeah, but that's... You you can't... I mean, let's be honest, Rad. When you and I walk into a supermarket when I'm staying at yours uh, and we're hungry, we buy the worst food. I mean, it's the best in the moment, but it does not set you up for for like a sustainable couple of days. We're buying multiple... Paul,
1: that is just my life. (laughs) That's just me living at any given point.
2: But that's, I mean, how is that not the struggle of Sargon in The Lost Crown? He is just going moment to moment. That's a terrible segue.
1: Wait, I do want to ask, if he's one of seven like Mm. legendary heroes. Do you play the other heroes later on?
2: No. And this is what's interesting. And look, this is very light spoiler territory, but each of them sort of has a thing they're good at. You've got the archer and you've got the kind of sneaky dude and you've got the big smashy dude. Classes. yeah, classes, sort of like a Seven Samurai type deal. They're all different character archetypes. You've got the big brash guy who drinks heavily and he's like... Because you're the youngest of the crew, basically.
1: Oh, okay, so, I'm the baby.
2: Yeah, yeah you're the like, one trying to prove himself, right? So, as the game goes on, and because you're in a city that was ostensibly fractured by some sort of big time schism or whatever, you end up finding the items, the iconic Wait, weapons...
1: You didn't say that before. You just dropped that piece of information. You're like, oh, the prince got captured and all of a sudden time schism.
2: Oh, right. Okay. So this ancient city has been hit by some. Oh my God, Paul. Yeah, but the game is about things happening out of order. So I'm allowed to fracture my review somewhat. (laughs) So, yeah, you do wander through this city and something has happened to this place. Some sort of terrible thing. You find soldiers who got there half an hour before you and they're old. They've been there for 30 years. Time's not working well. It's not making sense. The plot doesn't really do as much with this premise as I would like, but what it does mean is mechanically, you find items left over from your your sidekicks, your friends, long after they've passed. They're still alive, and they're like, you found my bow. That's weird. Oh, interesting. Now, none of this really gets resolved in a way that I found narratively super satisfying, but it does mean that you can be hanging out with the archer whilst you're holding the bow that he somehow left behind in the future. It's really... It's an interesting way of dealing with the gear upgrades.
1: Doing the whole Time Fracture thing, jumping back, (laughs) you said that the game didn't necessarily grab you and then you made uh, a comparison to Going Shopping Hungry. Where was that train of thought going? (laughs)
2: Okay, I I promise you this is going to make sense. So I have had a migraine for about five or six days, which is why we didn't release an episode late last week. And I had a shocking headache and was in a really bad mood. I was sunburned and confused. And that's when I decided to boot up this game, which is Mm. people have put a lot of effort into it. uh, And that's when I started playing it. And so whilst I don't think you should shop whilst hungry... Uh, You also shouldn't play a game or, you know, imbibe or experience any piece of art that you actually want to give a shit about when you're in a terrible mood, hungry, angry, confused, and with a migraine. So I stepped back in this morning and enjoyed it twice as much.
1: Shouldn't the art pull you out of the bad mood? Shouldn't it be like enrichment that makes you feel better?
2: Yeah, I think that's a very valid point.
1: Or is that asking too much from a video game?
2: I do think good art can pull you out of places... Physical pain, I don't know if it can do that. I mean, I've yet to see a film that was so good that it actually deadened (laughs) the nerve endings. If anything, bad art should do that. Bad art should numb you completely.
1: (laughs) No, they're just going to start taking the Mona Lisa on hospital tour and showing it to people. Who are in pain? It, forget anesthesia. Yeah, just, just get put, Mona in there.
2: I mean, ironically, waiting in line to see the Mona Lisa gave me a migraine once. It was a uh, <laughs> two-hour and eleven-minute queue around the back of the Louvre on a hot day. By the time I got there, I was so mad. I hated that small woman, uh, and so yeah, <laughs> she, she gave me a headache. That's why she was smiling. She loves it. She's she just loves inflicting pain. Look, part of the reason I enjoyed it so much this morning, apart from the fact that I didn't have a headache, is I was on Reddit searching for (laughs) other people who might have had a similarly, like, initially, uh, you know, kind of cool reaction to it. And I... uh, You were
1: searching for validation.
2: I was. (laughs) You're right. I was,
1: And and it sounds like you found it.
2: (laughs) I was hoping other people would back me up. (laughs) What I actually found, Rad, was a really interesting thread from a bunch of players saying this is the first Prince of Persia game that has Persian dialogue. So Ah. yes, I didn't have a headache this morning and I was in a better mood. But also I was playing this game with Persian dialogue and English subtitles and sure enough, it just feels more authentic. The voice acting's lovely, the flavor's better, and as a holistic experience, I've taken it from probably like a five to maybe an eight now.
1: You know, it's actually a little bit ludicrous to think that it's the first Prince of Persia game <laughs> that has kind of that connection to Persian culture. Yeah. It feels like a missed opportunity. And I think it's about time they gave Persia the respect that it's due in a piece of Prince of Persia media Because we all remember Jake Gyllenhaal's little brown face moment in the uh, (laughs) Prince of Persia film. From, what, like 2005 maybe? I don't know exactly.
2: I remember that film distinctly because the three leads in a film set in Persia, you got Jake Gyllenhaal, very white, Gemma Artisan, who's British, and Ben Kingsley. It was galling and also, I mean, not a great film. Kind of came out in that peak era of attempted video game movie adaptations.
1: I love video game movies because they're just always so shit. (laughs) They're just... They know what they are, right? They're just there for a bit of a money grab, bit of fun, bit of action. Very silly. I love them. However, I don't believe I watched The Prince of Persia 1 because Jake Gyllenhaal in that get-up, I could not get behind it. So it's very nice to see (laughs) that uh, the hands that grasp the franchise (laughs) are carefully bringing it to a better place.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I I like that image. You look like you're really cradling it lovingly, which is more than I can say for this franchise.
1: Speaking of my little oven mitt hands, uh, something that I got to get them onto yeah. recently was the Samsung S24, new Samsung flagship phone that's just come out.
2: Now, when you say oven mitt hands, you're not implying that this phone heats up and you like it. It stays relatively. Cool. When you're operating it, right?
1: Actually, what I was implying is that uh, four of my fingers are fused together, and then I just have the thumb and the one, <laughs> the one mitt.
0: Like
2: little fins, flippers. That's 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 Do adorable.
1: That? <laughs> <laughs> no, so I got to go get hands-on with the S24 lineup yeah. uh, as a bit of a preview um, of the phones and. It's really interesting because I think this is the first phone release, at least in recent memory, maybe ever, uh, that is focusing almost exclusively on software in its kind of marketing and advertising.
2: Ah, but can't, and forgive my ignorance, but can't you just put software in any phone, says the idiot? Like, is the, or, or is this software unique to this phone?
1: You, that's not an idiotic question. Um, and I, in fact, asked them that. I was like... <laughs> So, given that most of what you're talking about is software, are any of these features going to be rolled out to older models, to which they kind of gave a tentative... Yes, but we're not going to necessarily say what yet, etc. But it is nice that they're thinking about that. But the other side of the coin is that as you continue to push software further and further and make it more kind of computationally um, intensive, you need better hardware to be able to run it in the way that it desires to be run. So basically, you can't play a 2024 game on like a 1980 PC. (laughs)
2: No, you really can't. You can, of course, cram a floppy disk into a CD drive. You can do certain things, but they won't go the way you want to.
1: Precisely. And Mm. Samsung are going all in on the AI train. Toot, toot. We've been seeing AI spring up bloody everywhere. Everyone lumps to say AI nowadays. And they're calling it Galaxy AI and really pushing those features. Once again, anytime we talk about AI, I have to say... It's not new. There's been AI in phones for many a decade. Yeah. But decade? How long have phones been out? Yeah, it would be decades now. Oh, goodness.
2: <laughs> a while.
1: But they are really highlighting these AI-powered features. And some of them are pretty cool. So one of them is a live translation for phone calls that includes a transcript. So oh. you can literally call someone, turn this on. You have to select uh, the language. It doesn't auto-detect. And Mm. it will take whatever each person has said and use an AI-generated translation voice to say whatever back to the other person.
2: Oh my God. That is going to put so many translators out of work.
1: Uh, Yes and no. I don't think that it is a replacement for true translation. It's always going to be a little bit janky. May I be very, very clear that all of these translation services are not a replacement for a proper interpreter because when you're dealing with language, you're also dealing with culture and turns of phrase and things like that that aren't going to make it in a one-to-one uh, like computer-generated translation. Yeah. But for something like simple, like needing to book a table at a restaurant. Or other things that you might call someone for. I don't know what. What do you make phone calls for?
2: Break up with your Italian girlfriend. You know, in Love Actually, where he doesn't speak any Italian.
1: (laughs) Isn't it Portuguese? uh, I thought it was Italian.
2: I thought there wasn't he in Italy riding at that lake, and then I could be wrong.
1: No, I'm I'm pretty sure it's Portuguese. Look. (laughs) The other thing is, it doesn't actually matter, Paul. Actually, it doesn't matter at all. It
2: doesn't, no, it doesn't matter at all. <laughs> I just keep thinking about the Tower of Babel, you know, where everyone spoke different languages. And then the Lord said, look, they are one people and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing they propose to do now will be impossible for them, especially if they use the Samsung S24. Thus spaketh the Lord.
1: <laughs> but it is a pretty cool feature to just... I don't know help make life a little bit easier although there is like a fairly significant lag with it still there's also a transcription assist uh which transcribes your voice notes and then it can do auto formatting and you can choose like how you want to format it yeah and it apparently can tell where you might want dot notes i didn't get to use that feature so i don't know how well it works but it's kind of cool that they're looking at introducing more things like that and then Here's some of the actually cool ones. There's circle to search so you can circle stuff like in a picture oh. and and search for it. Oh,
2: that's really cool.
1: Yeah, so you're like, "Ooh, what's that flower? Let me circle her and see."
2: <laughs> oh, I I really like that you gendered the flower. That's <laughs> sweet (laughs) so sweet okay so this is in you're on your phone you see a picture of something you circle it 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 basically googles it for you right
1: yeah and to me that's a really great like quality of life feature and the s24 also does have the stylus i guess it's not built in because it's removable but like it has a it has a hole for the stylus on the phone and you can just like slip it into the phone so you don't need to have a case that can hold it or anything it's just like Yeah, got its little spot. But probably the biggest area that people are going to use these AI features is in photo editing. I mean, that's like, that's the the thing most people use their phones for nowadays, right? Mm. Like, to take their silly little pictures, myself included. But it's got AI photo editing, which can suggest changes. And it's got a generative edit, which is basically like Photoshop's content aware. So this was a lot of fun to play with. Very silly. You can circle something in a picture. Mm-hmm. It does a really good job of detecting what it is you're kind of trying to circle. And then you can move it in the picture. And then you can ask it to fill the area that you've moved it out of with something else. Or you can just delete it. And it's creative. You you would think, oh, it's just going to create like... A blank background or whatever. Yeah. No, no, no. It goes. Oh, you want me to make something else to put in this spot? Don't mind if I do. How's a hat?
2: (laughs) Wait, (laughs) wait. It's it's making up hats to fix problems. That's. I mean, that's. Yeah. That's what hat makers do every day. But that's (laughs) that's amazing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I also moved myself out of a photo, like just moved myself to the corner and it replaced me with i'm say a plinth <laughs> look
2: rad if you and I were doing the podcast and you disappeared and a plinth was here the conversation would not work it would, i mean there'd be a certain somber quality to the silence but it wouldn't be it wouldn't be the same but in a photo it works is what you're saying
1: um did i say that in a photo it works you said it did it did i say that <laughs> you didn't no, say I it think wo- it's a cute <laughs> I think at the moment it's still quite a fun, maybe almost gimmicky feature Mm. uh, that doesn't necessarily have that much application for people fixing photos. Uh, It does do a kind of edge fill-in thing. You know, if you take a photo like a bit too close and crooked and you need to straighten it up and then it gets those like empty spaces around the edge, you can use the AI to fill those out to give yourself like the bigger background, which is cool and it works pretty well. But to me, that's maybe the only spot that it's super duper useful. Having said that, the phone has had hardware upgrades as well as they do every single year. Mm. But yeah, the briefing was mostly focusing on these software elements. And I just think it's a really, really interesting time for tech where we've done such a hard pivot away from look at how much faster this phone is and look at how much nicer the camera is to look at all the things that we can do with AI in our software.
2: So if you have the Samsung that's immediately prior to this one, it doesn't seem like it's a worthy purchase. But if you need a phone, it could be a cool way to get a bunch of fun toys in the process, right?
1: Well, that's the interesting thing. I think the yearly cycle of phones has become so incrementally Mm. iterative. And I I don't say that as like poo-pooing it because I'm such a tech head. I can't help it. I want the new thing, even though I know it's only maybe like 10% better. Yeah. I'm like, ooh, 10%. I don't think that anyone really needs to upgrade their phone every year. And again, I say that as someone who does it. So I'm a sicko. Don't <laughs> listen to me. But I think it is going to maybe be a bit harder to convince people that they need to do that yearly upgrade when the focus is on software and if those software features are being rolled out to older phones. I think that they should roll software features out to older phones. I think that, you know, that's that's just being nice, isn't it, as a manufacturer? But yeah, for me, I didn't see anything that made me go, oh, that's a good upgrade, That makes that's tasty and I want it.
2: Well, Rad, you've been playing with fun toys and I actually want to talk about, yeah, it's time for the dollhouse at a talk break. This is going to get weird. Oh. So, listen. I got sent something in the mail uh, last week. It's the X06 Picard 1-6 scale articulated figure of Admiral Jean-Luc Picard. Now, uh, I should point out, I'm a huge Star Trek fan, but what this is basically is a 20, I think like a 28 centimetre tall um, Star Trek figure, which is apparently museum quality, and it's got like 30 points of articulation. It's in this outfit that was co-designed by the costume designer from the show. Uh, It's got an original like hand sculpt of... Uh, Patrick Stewart's face, it is so detailed and so inc- incredibly specific that I've been trying not to touch it all weekend.
1: Okay, uh, so many questions. Mm. Number one, museum quality. Yeah. Let's go back to that. Yeah. What does that mean? So I think
2: what they mean is it's basically too nice to play with. So you know you've got like, toys that you can bang around and do whatever. <laughs> this thing is like, it is... They literally have video tutorials on how to put things into his hands because the hands are like, everything's handmade, everything's incredibly detailed, everything is perfectly to scale, and it comes on this... Even the footwear is made in the style of the actual footwear, and... I mean, you open the box and he's lying there incredibly lifelike with replaceable hands next to him and a tiny bottle of uh there's a phaser next to him on one side and a tiny bottle of Chateau Picard on the other, uh, which is the wine that jean luc makes so I've got him holding wine,
1: okay, replaceable hands yeah. it's giving Bratz doll <laughs> does that mean that it has like the little line of gap around like the the joints and stuff? I was thinking, does it have those? Uh, kind of He-Man joints where it's it's two pieces slid into each other with a screw in the middle.
2: It's interesting. There's like a ball joint that you kind of pull the hand out of but because of all the immaculate tailoring the sleeves and the cuff length because I don't know if you've ever had a suit fitted but the cuff is always meant to go over the wrist so the sleeve, you basically hike his sleeves up to judge them queer eye styles give them a zhuzh and then what you see is sort of a classic blank plastic doll arm with the ball joint and everything from the ball joint onwards is this photorealistic articulated hand So you pop that out, put the other one in, pull the sleeves down, give them a little adjust, a little zhuzh. And they actually talk you through how to kind of smooth the fabric so it looks like it falls naturally. Because it's not... They've actually used a smaller weave of fabric so that it sits exactly as it would on the real person. So it's almost like the fabric weave is smaller as opposed to using a jumbo weave which would look like a large... It's... Rad, this is... I've never never had... Look. Rad. I like collectibles and toys, but this thing feels I'm scared of it. It's it looks so expensive. It's sitting right behind me kind of looming. And the thing is it is hands down the single best piece of Star Trek ephemera I've ever seen. It is a magnificent collectible. It's absolutely incredible, but I need to lock it up.
1: How expensive is this thing?
2: It's sitting around, I think it's like 250 USD for this. And I mean it's 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 how much did you think it was going to cost?
1: I don't know, maybe like eight hundred dollars. I don't buy figurines, yeah, yeah. So I don't know what their price point is. But when you're talking about like specialty tiny weave fabric and photorealistic little man face handmade, (laughs) to me that sounds very expensive. So in a way, I'm. Relieved.
2: Yeah, and I think shipping-wise, you're gonna have to pay for like life insurance. You're shipping a living thing. It's very, it's very expensive. <laughs> now they they're releasing a bunch that are coming up, because uh, these are based on this is based on Jean-Luc Picard from Picard Season Three, and the showrunner Terry Metalis has been collaborating with them, so they're gonna keep releasing stuff. But this leads me to something I wanted to talk to you about lately, and it's a very specific hobby/slash obsession, and rat, I feel like I feel like you and I are close enough that I can trust you with this admission, but I think I might be entering my dollhouse era.
1: Paul, you are saying this on a podcast that we release publicly to many people who aren't just me.
2: Yep, that's true. That's true. But I mean, I mainly do this for you. Uh, And you once chastised me for acknowledging the audience. You literally said, don't talk to them. Don't acknowledge
1: them. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. You're talking to me and I talk to the audience. All (laughs) right, so you're entering your dollhouse era. I will admit that I felt a sense of relief when you started talking about this and you had said dollhouse era Mm. and then it turns out you've actually just gotten one doll because I feel like the house itself is like (laughs) almost, not the scary bit, but the really intense bit, right? Yeah. So when you say dollhouse era, does that mean you're you're giving him a family? (laughs) What is it?
2: Okay, first of all, I'm not trying to create a Jean-Luc breeding program in a in a box in the corner of my room. It's too, Aren't, you? No, it's too, Aren't you? No, it's too hot in here for that. And Jean-Luc's from the French countryside, they prefer a cooler climate. No, actually, <laughs> look, Rad, I have a confession to make. Uh, this is not actually about the Jean-Luc Picard doll that they sent me. This is something different. So, I'm a very big Doctor Who fan, and about ten years ago, someone sent me this kind of collector's box of five-inch uh, Doctor Who figurines, ...of all the different Doctors from a company called Character Options... ...and they've had the license to make Doctor Who figurines for years... ...and every once in a while I'll see sort of a a different one from a different era of the show... ...and they're always very time limited and the, the stocks are very low and they're quite specific... ...so I'll order one occasionally on eBay for like 20 bucks. you know, whatever... And the other day I kind of put them all in the same place no, and don't went...
1: pretend that this is don't pretend this is just a whatever thing, <laughs> Paul. Don't pretend that you aren't actively searching for and collecting figurines. Well
2: I am now. The thing is I am now, and this is quite an honest admission. So when the show came back a couple of episodes ago, I reviewed the the new specials with David Tennant and Shudy Gutwa and I talked to them and that sort of lit this fire back under me. And I went to my box of dolls and basically went, how many do I have? (laughs) Turns out I have quite a lot. And then I realized there were a bunch I didn't have. And so I started seeking those ones out. And so now I have a very large box with multiple incarnations of each doctor. And I realized that I didn't have anywhere to put them. And so I went on to Etsy and I found a guy who basically makes... Uh, papercraft, dioramas, dollhouses, for different kind of sci-fi environs. So I've been printing them out scale, cutting them with an exacto knife, gluing them, finding the right paper stock, taking it back if it's the wrong paper stock, using different materials, gluing and pasting or whatever. And I've even got like a small makeshift lighting rig, which is big to kind of have drop lighting because this one's in a kind of sewer corridor. And so now I've got a dollhouse in my, in my office and... uh and I needed to tell you because I feel like I'm too deep in this not to admit it.
1: How many dollhouses? Are you doing like one for each doctor? Uh, because there's, there's like, what, 15 doctors? Have you made 15 little houses?
2: No, so first of all... Where my-
1: <laughs> all of the ones who are the same doctor live together in their different outfits?
2: Look, first of all, that wouldn't make sense. That's a paradox. But secondly, I think what I'm trying to do <laughs> is... What I, what I, okay, here's what I've actually done. In deference to Tegan, what happens is we have a display case in the office with a single sort of, uh, you know, like a foot and a half square box in a glass cabinet up top at eye level. And so the agreement was, and by the way, I voluntarily entered this agreement, is I'm going to have a rotating exhibit basically where each week I'm going to create a different scene from the show and you get to come in and go, Oh, that's from that thing. Cause Tegan's also a doctor who fan. And so I've been doing this once a week and she's been really enjoying it, but it's always just been different figurines in different positions. And so when she entered this week and found a, like a fully blown diorama, she was at once delighted and horrified. And then she said, how much did this cost? And I was like 15 bucks. Cause I literally used paper. And so she went, look, if you want to make little dioramas with paper and shift them out once a week, then that's totally fine by me. So I'm trying to keep it... I'm trying to keep it budgetarily on a sane level. And, you know, I'm cutting this thing up with an X-Acto knife and I'm I'm slicing and I'm dicing and I'm being super, super precise. And I'm doing this with view of my Admiral Picard doll, which is so photorealistic. I half expected whilst I was tracing on the paper that he'd lean in and whisper... The line must be drawn
0: here! This far, no farther!
2: That joke is for, like, ten of our listeners. I'm so sorry. <laughs> But the urge to buy props is getting pretty real, and I guess after we deal with the inherent shame, uh, I would like to talk about. I want to find out what your equivalent is. Like, what is your dollhouse era?
1: I don't know if I have one, Paul. Really? Because I'm a, I'm, I'm a like hyper practical person. Hmm. I find it really hard to spend time or money on things that. Uh, just for decoration or like frivolous or fun. Sure. Even the stuff that I get for decoration tends to be functional in some way. I guess my like main equivalent would be plants. But they're, they're saving the earth, so is that really like frivolous? I don't know. Rad,
2: the doctor saves the earth every day. Secondly, uh, what, about, <laughs> what about what about taxidermy? Well, I
1: mean, he's plastic. I... <laughs> he's plastic. He's hunks of plastic. Yeah. I I think it's maybe the hunks of plastic <laughs> element of it. That I can't really get around. Or if we're talking decorative, I guess like, yeah, I do collect a bit of taxidermy. Mm,
2: Okay, but you're not building dollhouses for dead animals. You're just putting them in nice cabinets, presumably.
1: Yeah, because I want my house to feel like a museum. And fossils. Okay, no, so I take it back. I I do collect things that are just decorative. Maybe it's the element of it being made from plastic.
2: I've tried to make it as artisanal as possible, but I really bounced off the fact that they are (sighs) toys. And so I'm having to find ways to arrange them where it looks sort of classy and minimalist, which is where I come in with the exhibit. So there's one now that's just like a kind of a sewer tunnel and it's lit beautifully and there's three people in it. And it's got, I'll send you a photo later, but it doesn't look bad. It just looks like a little kind of curiosity. And I think if I went any further, I would look, uh, it would look strange and I would find it repellent. I think I'm sitting in that little kind of blind spot right now. So I can't have Picard in there because he's twice as tall, unless I want the doctor fighting a giant Patrick Stewart. And that hasn't happened in the in the canon. Yet. That could be cool. That could be cool. Imagine if they're scaling that him like a cool. kaiju.
1: You could build a little ruined city. Look, I, I love this new hobby for you. I think that having creative hobbies is so important and you're not hurting anyone. Um <laughs> and you. good on you, Paul. Thanks.
0: Oh
2: God.
1: Speaking of hurting people, have you played Last of Us Part Two? <laughs> I I say that because it not only involves hurting of people within the game, yeah. but I feel like it also emotionally hurt a lot of people.
2: Yeah, I played Last of Us 1 and 2, the originals, and these games are emotionally scarring and watching friends of mine uh, sit down to watch the TV show and watching them sort of get optimistic about things (laughs) and having to stay quiet is a real thing. And yes, you're right. Pain seems to be the core mechanic of this this series.
1: Well, the remaster of Last of Us Part 2 just came out a very short three and a half years after the original. I've been playing it. I never finished Part 2 when it first came out. So it is sort of nice to have that remaster to sort of hook you back in or give you another reason to go in and play. They Mm. have changed a few things with mechanics, accessibility. Uh, They've added some new modes and you can upgrade from your original copy of part two to the remastered version for less than full price of the game, which is kind of cool. But Paul, I wanted to ask you if you can think of another franchise that is as bonkersly beloved as Last of Us. Because as you said, there's the first one and then there was a remaster of the first one, and then a complete rebuild. There's the sequel, and now the remaster, and there's a TV show. (laughs) Are we doing too much? Well, I'd say
2: we're doing too much for a game which is so emotionally harrowing. I mean, going back to this game, once you've played it, is really difficult, because there are things that happen in it which are, again, Prestige TV is littered with storylines which you only have to experience once, but the gameplay loop of The Last of Us games is so satisfying that... I'm curious as to who is replaying these games over and over and over again. I mean, GTA 5 has had multiple, multiple, multiple remasters, but that's an open world game. This is a narrative-based game. I can't think of anything equivalently beloved. No.
1: Do you think it's because people want to imagine themselves in this world, even though it is, as you said, harrowing? <laughs> And kind of scary and awful, because there there was that really big era of people being obsessed with post apocalyptic kind of zombie yeah. um, content, and I think part of the appeal of that. Is imagining what you would do in these situations and sort of believing that you yourself could survive. Yeah, do you think that that's the element that draws people in?
2: I would say that, but the thing is, most of the zombie open world apocalyptic games that I enjoy are ones where the main character is an empty cipher upon whom I can impose my ideals, my worldview, <laughs> my personality, my moral barometer. But in the but Joel is a very specific character. Ellie is a very specific character. You can't play the game as someone else. You are playing as a fully scripted, single-player version of a character. And also, they make choices I wouldn't make. Now, I love mm. experiencing the world from other people's point of view, but I, I can't share a bleak world view. And the showrunner of uh, The Last of Us made Chernobyl, so you know he's a sunny fella with a really cheerful disposition. This is not a dude who believes that humanity <laughs> is capable of doing better things. So... I wouldn't play these games or watch the show if you expected a uh, a happy-go-lucky worldview.
1: I think media is this sort of really special place where we can experience often negative emotions that are in a safe way. Yeah. And that's why people watch scary stuff, right? It's a way to experience fear, which is a part of the gamut of human emotions in a safe way. And I think that that can be really, really healthy. At the same time a piece of media that's about a pandemic and sort of the hell that gets unleashed because of it is a really hard sell post-2020. And I am finding it maybe a little bit more difficult to stomach than I previously found post-apocalyptic media. Of course, part two did come out in like June 2020, so sort of in the height of it all. But I think kind of at that time we were sort of in lockdowns and still thinking this whole COVID thing will blow over. It didn't have the same global ramifications yet that it does now. We hadn't been traumatised quite yet. We were just at the beginning of the journey.
2: <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, what I love is that people, if you took your time playing The Last of Us 2 and you were going through a particularly hard lockdown, you're getting double traumatised. You're getting flanked by trauma, right? You're getting, I remember when um, Tegan ch- popped on World War Z for the first time in early lockdown, and we were watching it going, oh, I'm sure this will be fine. I'm sure this won't turn into whatever this film is about. But now, you're right, post-lockdown, The Last of Us 2... Even a a very pretty remaster, surely that's triggering some stuff for some players, right?
1: I'm sure it would be, but I think for me, I am feeling sort of what I said before, that vibe of playing and thinking, yeah, I could do that. I could totally survive. Look, I figured out this puzzle. I figured out how to turn on that generator. I could do that in real life and climb that wall and save myself, (laughs) Uh, which, you know, I'm not sure that I'm the type of person that needed that sort of boost to hubris. (laughs) And I am just quietly hoping that uh, we never find ourselves actually in that situation. But if there is a series uh, that can stand up to yet another, yet another remaster, <laughs> and I think Last of Us might be it.
2: Well, that's The Last of Us on this episode of the show, that is.
1: Oh! That was a good one, Paul.
2: Thanks, man. Uh, But that's all the time we have for this episode of Game for Anything. It's been so much fun hanging out with you all. We'll see you next time.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.